Thank you, worship team. Can we give it up to our band there? Well, happy Wednesday. It's Wednesday. Yes, it is Wednesday. Who had a wonderful Thanksgiving weekend? Yeah, I had a great Thanksgiving weekend. You know one thing I missed, though, because of Thanksgiving weekend? You're right. Yes, Brianna. Slightly, you're correct. Now, I did miss you, and I missed being here on Monday Chapel. I've really enjoyed our Monday chapels this year. So it's nice to be here tonight together in our chapel. We're going to get into our last sermon in the series, Dwelling Among Us. This is our last one in this series. Can you believe it? We're already at the end of this week. You know what you have going on next week, right? I don't need to remind you. That means we are like literally 25% of the way done the year already. What? Isn't that crazy? So we're going to conclude our series, Dwelling Among Us, in the first half of the book of John tonight. And then uh, there's no chapel next week because of midterm exams, no Monday or Wednesday chapel. And then we will resume the following week with a Monday uh, and Wednesday chapel. Our Monday series is going to continue on for the semester for about uh, the, the wise will listen. But we're going to start a new series in two weeks from now about contemplative spirituality. We're going to go through a few different habits and um, ways in which that we can grow in our relationship with Jesus, with the Lord, through some specific habits of uh, spiritual formation and contemplative spirituality. We've got a couple guest speakers as well, which I'm looking forward to. It's going to be awesome. Okay? So our last one here in the book of John, uh, we are going to read out of chapter 9. So you can open your Bible up to chapter 9. But I'm going to first begin here with John chapter 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Amen? The Word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. That's been our key verse for our series. The word, Jesus Christ, came to this earth to dwell among his people. And we've been going through these scenes, these episodes in the beginning half of the book of John. That John writes and portrays these wonderful, beautiful scenes full of emotion full of brokenness and full of pain and hurt and full of forgiveness and grace and healing. And he makes these scenes for us to, to see the Jesus that he's talking about. The, the glory of God in full form, full of grace and truth through the person of Jesus. So from the very first chapter, John uses this poetic language and imagery and words to describe to his readers who Jesus is. Right? He uses light and darkness. We've been talking about that. The contrast that John uses about light and darkness. People living in the light and those in darkness. He's using water to showcase that Jesus is the true, living, life-giving water. That Jesus is merciful and Jesus is gracious. That Jesus is healer. That Jesus is forgiving that he is the restorer, he is the Messiah. We have seen God's glory in the fullness of Jesus. Amen? Amen? Amen. So we've worked through these scenes. And we've worked specifically that where Jesus is one-on-one with someone. He's close with them. He dwells with them. He's compassionate to them. He's caring. He looks at them and he speaks to them. Sometimes ignores their question and responds with the question, but he, he knows them. And the desire is to see these people know him. And we've gone through this series because of the conviction in our hearts for you guys as students that you would have moments with Jesus, personal moments where he is close with you, where he sees you, 
where he hears you, where he knows you. He sees your pain. He sees your heartache. He sees your anxiety. He sees your worry. And he's here as the healer. He's here as forgiver. He's here as Messiah, as Lord, full of grace and compassion and trust and love. And I believe that we as Christians desperately, desperately need to dwell with Jesus. We live at a pace in society that does not naturally lend towards the easiness of dwelling with Jesus. We live at such a speed that I don't think we were designed intentionally for to begin with. We're at such a race, at such a pace, that it is hard to dwell one-on-one with Jesus. Anybody there with me? Can be honest in that? Appreciate that. Where we need to intentionally find time personally and collectively, to dwell with Jesus. <clears throat> Man, we, we talk so much about great dreams, and I love big dreams. We talk so much about big ideas and vision. We talk so much about what our futures will look like and the impact that we want to make. We talk about the ideas and the plans that we have for churches or ministries or missions and, and movements or positions that we want to identify with. We get so caught up for doing for God that we neglect being with him and being known by him. One of my favorite authors, Rich Velotis, he says, there are so many people committed to being a Christian but not being deeply formed by Christ. It's challenging, right? That intimate, close relationship with Jesus. So here we go, John chapter 9. Open up your Bibles. I'll have it up on the screen. But keep your Bibles open because, like, we're going to go through the whole chapter. And then we'll start from the top and go through it again. All right? You with me? we got 38 verses to get through. Starting at verse 1, it says this. As he, would be Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned said Jesus. But this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and put it in the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had, had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they demanded. And he replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. Verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? And so they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the man replied, he is a prophet. And the Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered. And we know that he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God and tell the truth, 
they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. I really like this guy. <laughs> that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes? We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And to this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Verse 35. Jesus heard that he had been thrown out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. What a story, eh? Man, what drama in this story. What tension in this story. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, there's some similarities to this story to one previously that I may have spoke on two weeks ago about an invalid who couldn't move, who desired to see healing take place, and Jesus came and healed him, and then peaced out, <laughs> and then came back. And there's some real similarities to these stories. But there's some uniquenesses to it as well. Some background context to this story specifically. Kim talked about uh, the story about the accused woman, the accused uh, woman and caught in adultery, uh, which took place in Jerusalem. And, and at this time in which the story that Kim mentioned last week and this story specifically here happened in Jerusalem, all of this is really taking place in the temple courts. And uh, during this time, it was the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, according to these passages. And so it's one of three, like, pilgrimages that the Israelites would take, the Jews would take, to Jerusalem each year to celebrate. And so the Festival of Tabernacles, or the Festival of Booths is what it was called. And so Jews would travel to Jerusalem, and they would set up these tents. They would set up these, like, man-made booths, temporary shelters, to live in for a week or eight days. And so there would be businesses would set up booths outside their businesses. Owners of homes would set these tents outside, these man-made shelters, temporary shelters, and live outside their homes. And then those who journeyed to Jerusalem, they would bring their tents and they would set them outside the city. And there would be tons of people camping together, living in these booths during this festival time. Lots of people in the city. Lots of people at the temple. Lots of milling going on around. And Jesus strategically set his time to go to Jerusalem during this festival. And so the, the Feast of Tabernacles, it was meant that people would come and essentially give thanks to God for the provision that he gave for that year. So it was in autumn, around this time of the year, and the agricultural year had come to an end, and so it was a way to thank God for his provisions for the year. But primarily, it was a law out of Leviticus that they would celebrate and thank God for his provisions for what he did for their ancestors in coming out of Egypt, right? As the Israelites were freed from the land of Egypt and made their way to Canaan for 40 years in the desert, they wandered and lived in tents. They lived in temporary shelters. And the reason why it was called the tabernacle is because they would carry along as well the tabernacle and make the tabernacle each time they had moved. And that's where the glory of God, his presence reigned in the tabernacle during that time. So it was to remember the 40 years that God cared for, provided food, provided the amenities needed for the Israelites for 40 years, being led by the Spirit, by the cloud by day, and the fire of pillar at night. So all of this escaping Egypt that we just sang about, this festival was to remember God's provision during that time. And here's Jesus coming into Jerusalem, 
And there's lighting ceremonies for the Feast of Tabernacles. And there's like massive pillars and menorahs with like golden bowls that are on it. That is like every night they're lit and the light shines across the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus came into the temple and claims that he is the true light of the world. And he comes in at this time. And there's so much poetry and so much imagery in this time as Jesus came during the Feast of Tabernacles. Because tabernacle, the Hebrew word for tabernacle, is mishkin. Right? The tabernacle, the portable sanctuary of the presence of God that would move around with the Israelite camp. It was always in the center of the camp. Everybody would put their shelters and tents around the tabernacle as it stayed in the center of the camp. And the mishkin root word means to dwell. That God came to dwell among his people. And here's Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. As the lighting ceremony goes on, he says, I am the light of this world. Proclaiming that he came to dwell among his people. The imagery, the literary devices that John uses, it's so beautiful. The light and the darkness. That this miraculous light that came into this world. And we now get to see it through that of a man who was born blind, who saw only darkness his entire life, to a miraculous healing of now he sees light and he sees life. And this physical healing becomes a symbol of spiritual healing. And then this physical blindness is replaced with a spiritual blindness that we see in those around him. Okay, so in John chapter 9, we're broken down into three sections, okay? And we're going to go through these three sections together. The first is the healing of the blind man. Such a wild, such a cool story. Jesus, he's in Jerusalem, walking around, and his disciples notice this blind man, and they question him. Is it him who has sinned? Why is he blind? Or was it his parents? And Jesus replies with neither, like neither this man nor his parents. But this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And I don't believe that God intentionally uh, hinders people. I don't believe he intentionally puts, uh, makes a person blind or has some sort of deformity or defect or unfortunate circumstance or reality. I think that's because of sin that there is blindness or deformities or un. Uh, un- Likely person or not personality, circumstances. I think it's because of sin that this happens. Not because God designed that to happen. But I do believe that Jesus here is showing that because that there is sin and evil and pain in this world, that because of that, he's able to show that his works are greater than sin and evil and pain in this world. So I don't believe that God intentionally hinders people. I do believe that there is sin and pain and evil in this world. And I do believe that no matter the evil, the pain, or the sin, that God's works are greater than all of it. He says, while I am in this world, I am the light of this world. And Jesus gives light to this man. He gives sight. Living in darkness his whole life. He is an adult man, a beggar on the streets. His whole life. And Jesus heals him. What I find so unique about this healing, though, is the way in which Jesus heals this man, right? Like he spits in the ground, he makes a bit of mud, he pats the guy on the eyes with it, and then he sends, the man's still blind at this time, then he sends him off to a pool. Like he doesn't even walk him there, he just says, go find the pool and swim in it. And then he goes swimming in it, and like as he dunks himself in, I could just imagine, it would be so awesome to see. Like he just dunks himself in, and then up out of the water, and he can see. Like how cool would that have been? Like imagine that moment of just like in the water and out, and a life completely transformed in a single moment. But why did Jesus use mud and spit And water to heal this person. Because there's some similarities to the healing of the man of Bethesda. But in that situation, it was nothing to do with the pool. Like Jesus said, don't even go near the water. I am the living water. And so now he uses a pool. Well, that's kind of weird. So it made me think of a few other miracles that Jesus performed that were recorded in the Gospels. 
And it's difficult to figure out like a silver lining throughout each of those miracles. Because like there's a pool and then there's no pool. There's mud in the face. And with the invalid, Jesus just heals them right there. He just says, pick up your mat. Doesn't even touch the guy. He says, pick up your mat and walk. When Jesus heals the man with leprosy, the guy asks Jesus, are you willing? Jesus says, yes, I am willing. And he heals the man by touching him. There's the faith of the bleeding woman who touched his clothes. So in that moment, Jesus didn't even have a conversation with her at first. And she was healed just by her faith reaching out and touching his garment. There's the faith of the father, the official who pleaded on behalf of his ill son, who wasn't even present in that moment. Geographically, geographically wasn't even with them. And Jesus heals his son. Jairus' daughter who died. Jesus went to the body just like with Lazarus, and went in with her parents and three disciples, and she came out healed and alive. The faith of the centurion, the ill servant, Jesus asks if he should come and heal the ill servant. And the centurion says, no, no, all I need you to do is just say the words, and they'll be healed. So Jesus says, go, let it be done as you believed it would. There's no common thread between all of these. They're all different. There's resources used, then there's no resources used. There's like Jesus going and physically touching the people, and then there's Jesus not touching them at all. They're not even anywhere near them. There's people who by faith believe, if they believe and touch Jesus or tell Jesus, by faith, you say the words, and I believe it's going to happen. And then there's the man with leprosy of like, hey, if you want to, like, I don't know, would you? Like, so there isn't really depth in faith there. Or the invalid, or the blind man, where there wasn't even a request at all. There's no faith. And Jesus heals all of them. So there's this, man, it's difficult to figure out, okay, why all this difference in the way that he brings healing into into people's lives? And the only common thread in all of it is that Jesus is the healer. That's the only common thread, is that Jesus is the healer. And so my belief is that Christ healed, and he does heal today. And in so many different forms, Jesus heals and continues to heal today. And I believe so many different methods and forms were used so that we don't seek the method of healing, but that we seek the Christ who is the healer. Because we already do that enough as is, don't we? Oh, this woman just had faith, so I just need more faith. I just need to, like, reach out and touch and believe and name it and claim it, and boom, it's going to happen. Right? We already think of, like, oh, if I pray enough, or if I read enough, or if I do this enough, or if I serve enough, or if I love enough, if I don't swear as much as I usually do, then Jesus will bring healing into my life. And we already think too much about methods to begin with. And if we heal the same way, we would just seek the method. That would bring the healing touch. And what Christ wants is us to seek the healer, not just the healing. And then what does Jesus do? He repeats himself as he did before. Changes a person's life and then slips out of the picture. (laughs) Right? Impacts, life change, life altered. And then the guy's like, I have no idea where he is. Why does that happen? I know we talked about this two weeks ago, but why does that happen? Or why do some people get healed and not everybody get healed? Why are there people who still to this day are facing pain and hurt and have prayed and prayed and prayed and in faith and read scripture and done what they believe all they can do to receive healing and spoke, and asked, and requested in Jesus' name, and still have never been healed? I don't know. I don't know. Do I believe that God is sovereign and greater than all of it? Absolutely I do. But as to the reasons why some do get healed, receive healing, experience that life-altering moment instantly, and some don't, I don't know. And it's interesting that this man says the same thing. God, where are you? Why haven't you healed me? Where are you? I don't know. What I do know is that he is near. 
I don't know his ways always or why he does things or why he doesn't, but I do know that he's near. So this man, he goes home. He goes home. It says that he went into the pool, he can see, and then he went home. And a really unique series of events takes place for this man whose life was completely altered by Jesus. So this man, blind, a beggar, known in his community that he was a beggar, he's an adult. Everyone knew of him, his unique circumstance. And his neighbors questioned him, is this even the man that we know of? That kind of looks like him. There's no way it could be him. He's been blind his whole life. Some believed it was him. Some didn't believe it was him. But the healed man insisted, I am that man. It is me. And they just could not believe, one, if this is the man who he says he is, or two, if this really happened, how did this happen? And so we need some people in our lives who know a lot of things, so we're going to go to the Jewish council. We're going to bring them to the leaders, to the Sanhedrin, and we're going to interrogate this man, and we're going to ask away, why? Can you explain how this young, or sorry, how this man became from being blind to being able to see? So in their disbelief, they brought him to these religious leaders. Like, could you imagine again? Life change, your home, your family, your community is saying, I don't like the way, I don't like to see this change in your life, so we're going to bring you to the officials, we're going to bring you to the leaders, and we're going to question everything about your experience that you're telling us. And so they question the man. And they don't even ask First off, about the healing. They don't even ask, first off, about if this man is lying, if it really truly is him or not, because that's the reason why they brought him to the Jewish leaders. Is this really the man? And if this is, how did this healing take place? What did the Jewish leaders get all in a huff and upset about? That he healed on the Sabbath. Sabbath. The man was questioned. And the Pharisees' main worry was that he was healed on a Sabbath, just like we read about in John 5. This repeat offense of Jesus healing on the Sabbath. In verse 16, it says, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Do you see how the person who is physically blind is now with the people who are spiritually blind? Do you see the picture that John is painting? That those who were physically able to see and were trained in the law and would have hypothetically known the most were spiritually blind to the reality of Jesus being from God. Being God, shoot, excuse me. It got so bad that they had to bring in the adult's parents. Like that's, that's bad when you're an adult and your parents have to come in and like speak on behalf right? Like, that's bad. And so they bring in the parents. And the parents, we know that this is our son. We know that he was born blind. How? We don't know how he can see. Again, that word, that phrase, I don't know. A couple of times now, it's been mentioned. So the leaders, they were unconvinced We know he's our son. We know that he's born blind. But how he can see now? I don't No, and so they deflect back to the son in fear of being rejected from their community, just like his son is being rejected from his community. So a second time, the healed man comes in before the council and things get spicy. Oh, I really like this guy and his response to these leaders. Like we're talking about, this is in the temple courts. This is to the Jewish council. So again, lots of people around. It's a couple of sentences here, but this most likely would have taken all day, if not longer, right? And they say to the man, give glory to God by telling the truth. That's the most like truthful thing they've ever said, <laughs> just in the wrong context. And, and the healed man asked, is asked again, how Did he heal you? How is this real? How is this possible? Because the miracle, it demands an explanation, right? Like here's this man, blind his whole life, a beggar. People would have known him. The magnitude of it points only to the source of God. But in this case, 
if God only listens to sinners, as this man exclaimed, and God listened to Jesus, Jesus cannot be a sinner, and the Jewish leaders could not handle that truth and that reality. And so they ask him, is he a sinner? Is he a sinner? And I love his response in verse 25. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. There it is again. I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Man, isn't that so beautiful? So after the man cast some shade towards these leaders, oh, do you want to be his disciples? Right, you're asking me again. I've already told you my answer. You already know. Okay, he put mud in my eyes, and then I went to the pool, and I washed away, and all of a sudden, I came up and I could see. And they insulted him, threw insults and anger at him and tossed him out of the temple and tossed him out of the Jewish community. And you know what? That's some of your stories in this room. That's a bit of my story. Where all of a sudden, you experience Jesus. And a life-changing moment happens in your life. And you go to tell those people closest to you, your family and your community. But all what happens is those closest to you, your family and your community and your society at large, rejects you. This man sees for the first time, experiences Jesus for the first time. And we get to the place of faith and salvation and redemption, and he is rejected by those closest to him. And some of you, that is your story. And some of you, in your ministry, it's many of the stories of the kids in your ministry, where they so badly want to experience Jesus or have experienced him and can't even fully explain their experience to him. But they know something happened. And because of that, they get rejected from their family and from their community. And then what happens? In this low moment of this man's life, big high, now he gets to see, gets rejected from all the who know him, and in this low moment, Jesus shows back up again. After he gets rejected, Jesus shows up once again. And he asks him a question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Son of Man? And his response is, who is he, sir? Tell me so I may believe. See, titles here are important to John in, in all of his writings. I don't know if you've picked this up in all the previous sermons that we've done. Sir is used multiple times in all of our passages that we have used. Each of the characters that we have worked through, each um, speak to Jesus in the title of Sir. And they use this title of like of a person of you know, importance, but just a man still. And we can see in the progression of our passage here, John, this is a specific literary device that he uses in his writings. As the progression of this chapter, as he works through it, we see the prog progression of the faith of this man, this blind man, who was, yes, physically blind, spiritually blind, but came to seeing physically and spiritually as well. It begins with using the terminology and title of a man. Who is this man? Who is this man? I don't know. I don't know who this man is. And they ask him again, who is this man? And he says, a prophet. He's, he must be a prophet. And then they ask him again, how did he heal you? Who is this man? He's like, I told you already. Do you want to be one of his disciples? And they're like, we're not this fellow's disciple. Right? We're disciples of Moses. Not this fellow. And there's this progression of like man, prophet, fellow. And then there's this address as sir. So there's this development of faith in this person's life. But then we get to our question in verse 37, or verse 35. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? Tell me so I may believe in him. In verse 37, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. And the man replied, Lord. See that progression of his faith? Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Isn't that so beautiful, this progression of this man's faith, who was physically blind, came to this place of, yes, physical healing, but spiritual renewal to who Jesus was? 
He's a man, I don't know. What did he do? I don't know. He just he healed my eyes. To a place now of not just fellow and sir and prophet, but Lord. Jesus is Lord. Levi and team, I'll get you guys to come on back up. But, but Jesus' response to him in that question, like, who is he, sir? Like, tell me so I may believe. Like, again, Jesus gives these, like, unique responses, right? He says the line, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. Like, that's kind of weird in our culture. But in the context of the language that Jesus uses here, it makes a lot of sense for the understanding of seeing someone and hearing a person. With their cultural context, they knew and they understood that when you see someone and when you hear someone, you know that person. That's how you have a relationship, is by seeing the person and hearing the person. And if you do so, you know that person. And we see the progression of his faith. Who is this man? Verse 12. I don't know. Parents. Who is this man? Why did he get healed? How did your son get healed? But how he can see, we don't know. Verse 25. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know is I was blind, but now I see. And there's all these responses of, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And the progression of seeing Jesus as a man through to a prophet to being Lord, there's all of a sudden this faith that Jesus says, the person that you see and the person that you hear, you do know. And that's his response of, Lord, I believe. Because Jesus came to dwell among his people, that they would know him and be known by him. He came for salvation. He came for redemption. But he came to dwell among his people so that they would know him and be known by him. The healing in this chapter, and it's a cool story. Like, it's a really cool story. I would have loved to have seen this. I would love to see a healing like this take place in my life. I've always desired to see some large magnitude physical healing take place in a person's life that would change not just that person, but like a community and increase faith. I've always desired that. But at the same time, I'm so convicted because the healing in this text is not the main focus. The healer in this text is the main focus. The healing is just the sermon illustration. I'm not going to get into chapter 10, but chapter 10 is a continuation and a conclusion of this whole scene. The scene that began back with the lady that Kim talked about last week. This whole scene of Jesus as forgiver, grace giver, and healer. Here in this place as healer and life giver. Jesus is the focus. These are the sermon illustrations. And Jesus then teaches in chapter 10. I'm not going to go through it. But Jesus teaches to the Pharisees and to all those that were around the temple courts at the time. And he says, I am the gate. He says, I am the gatekeeper who opens the gate and the sheep listen to his voice. Then he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And the hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons and runs away. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Because they see me and they hear me. Because I came to dwell with them. And our conviction for you, for your futures, for your ministries, for your relationships, for your marriages, for family, for all of it, but my goodness, for right now. That you would know God and that he would be known in your life. That you would know that Jesus came to dwell so that he would be known by you and that you would be known by him. That we live in a society that loves to live at a pace that that's truly, really difficult to master. 
And because we live at such a speed and at such a pace that it too easily is able to neglect being known by God and knowing Him and being intimate and close and personal with Him, it gets pushed off. And what happens is, man, we, we feel like God is not there. And He is there. He's always there. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it. The pace of society takes us to a place where doubt increases and disbelief increases and, and questions increases to a place where we say, I don't know. His sheep know him. and He knows his sheep. And he's here. And he desires to dwell with you. And the reason why we're going on to our next series of contemplative spirituality is because we believe that as we instill some personal habits into our own life, that we can draw closer to Jesus and dwell with him and know him and be known by him. Would you stand with me? I love the, the wording on that last verse in 38. The man who was blind, who now can see, says the words, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. So to finish off tonight, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna proclaim our belief in Jesus as Lord, and we're gonna worship him together. So Levi, you can go for it.
song, finish off our night tonight, and then we'll, we'll let you go. Levi, you can take it away, and then when you're done, uh, have a great evening. Love you all, and I hope you do well on your exams.
Let's sing. Okay, we're going to end this off with a banger, okay? <laughs> I don't know if you guys know the song Happy Day. Does anybody know it? Okay, get ready to dance, okay? Oh, come on. Yeah, you know it. Greatest day in history. Come on, death is beating. Death is beating. You have rescued me. Sing it out. Jesus is alive. Oh, the empty cross, the empty grave. Not eternal, you have won the day. Sing it out. Jesus is alive. Come on, he's what? You're ours. And this joy in perfect peace. Earthly pain finally will cease. Jesus sees his life. He's alive. Happy day. Happy day. You wash my sin. Bye.